The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So we have the privilege now to continue in our worship as we look to God's Word, the Scriptures, together. We are going through the book of Acts in sequence, just the way that Luke wrote it. Luke, the personal friend of the Apostle Paul, missionary, doctor, man of God and wrote these 28 chapters in our English Bible 2,000 years ago, and God has preserved it through His Holy Spirit as a gift to the church and also for personal edification for every believer, even us 2,000 years later. Absolutely amazing. And God's Word is living and active. And so we are being blessed. We are being fed as we study the book of Acts. We are now in chapter 7. Before I get to there, I want to thank those who filled in and covered for me last week. Thanks to JR, who brought the word. And I think from 2 Corinthians on the thorn in the flesh, and actually I heard many of our saints who were blessed by that sermon. So thank you for your faithfulness, JR, in bringing the word and reminding us that we're called to have thorns that will never be removed. That was really encouraging. But uh, I'm just kidding. Just powerful. And thank you uh, also, some of you might not know, uh, a ministry, a newer ministry that has started that summarizes all the high points of the sermons and is written up and then sent out to everybody. That has also been a tremendous blessing. So thank you, Jasmine, soon to be Patton, and Dana, who's been helping her with that. Just some of you have asked and didn't know who was doing that. So that's another blessed ministry to reinforce God's word for us. With that, we have the wonderful privilege to go to God's word. We're going to look at Acts chapter 7 today. I put an outline on the back of your bulletin if you find that helpful. And if you're one of those people that likes to take notes. The title of the sermon today is Stephen, the First Christian Martyr. We introduced this two weeks ago. That's why today is part two. Two weeks ago, we addressed part one where Stephen was introduced to us in Acts chapter 6 as an influential man of God in the early church and then was selected by that church body in the Jerusalem church to serve in a special way, helping the apostles who were the first elders of the church of Jerusalem And Stephen actually was one of seven men who served in kind of a quasi-prototype deacon position, among other things. He wasn't only a deacon. It turns out he was a preacher and a prophet and actually had the ability to do miracles, which was rare at that time because mostly it was through the apostles. Uh, A courageous man, a bold man, an insightful man, a, um, a Jew, but probably of Greek persuasion, but very influential and quickly rose to prominence in terms of being identified as a man of great integrity among the 20,000-plus early Christians in Jerusalem. And Stephen began to preach in the synagogues, and boldly so, several of them. And there was great resistance and opposition to his message because what Stephen preached in the Jewish synagogues was the supremacy and the priority of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises. And there was great resistance and hostility to that, so much so that it created a tumult in the surrounding area of Jerusalem, some of the leaders in these local synagogues, particularly non-Judean uh, synagogues, they were like Greek Jewish synagogues, um, and there was great resistance. They rose up, they vocalized, they complained, they argued with Stephen when he would preach and teach toe-to-toe. And then also they went to the authorities there in Jerusalem, those who were in charge of the temple, the, San, the Sanhedrin basically, the the Supreme Court of Jerusalem at the time, composed of 71 influential 
Jewish leaders composed of the high priest and relatives of the high priest, Caiaphas, Annas, and some of their relatives, John and Alexander, very influential high priestly family who wielded pretty much all the power in the 71-member Sanhedrin Supreme Court of Jerusalem and all of Israel. So these people that were interacting with Stephen and arguing with him, they complained to the Sanhedrin. They tattled on Stephen. And that created huge problems. And the Sanhedrin was also composed of a, a big majority of Sadducees who hated the Christians already, knew who John and Peter and the apostles were, had already arrested them twice, gave them a gag order twice, beat them with rods recently once. The gag order was, do not preach Jesus. Stop. This is that Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin also had influential Pharisees as well, including Gamaliel, the most prominent, famous, respected, feared Pharisee. Even some of the Sadducees feared Gamaliel for whatever reason. That speaks of his amazing stature that was really unmatched. So so, uh, Gamaliel is in this Sanhedrin as well. And so um, they take action. And we saw that Stephen was arrested quickly. And he is now on trial. And that's where we left off. And so last two weeks ago in Stephen, the first Christian martyr, part one, Stephen had been dragged into a kangaroo court before the Sanhedrin. He's standing there. They're probably in a semicircle, sitting down in their prominent, like, throne-like seats, looking down upon him in intimidation and whatever else. He's already been accused. He's already been rendered guilty. We saw that. They came up with four false charges. And so Stephen is now giving his testimony. And the high priest asked, are these charges so? And two weeks ago we saw... Stephen began to give his testimony in this courtroom before this kangaroo court, and we got to verse 8. And the theme of his testimony, verses 2 to 8, chapter 7, was he talked about Abraham. And what he was doing is identifying with these 71 Sanhedrin members who have accused him of not being Jewish. Stephen, you're not a true Jew. You've rejected Judaism. You've rejected the law. You've rejected Moses. You've rejected the temple. You've rejected the Old Testament. You're a phony You deserve to be arrested. You deserve a penalty. You have anything to say for yourself. And immediately, Stephen's testimony in verses 1 through 8 was all about showing that, no, indeed, he was not a false Jew, but a true Jew, a fulfilled Jew. And he started with laying common ground that you accusers there, you judges, say that you are pure Jews. And so immediately he talks about the first Jew ever, which was Abraham. Abraham was the first Jew historically in about 2000 B.C., and Stephen identifies, uh, this is our father, our, our father Abraham said. And then, he, and then Stephen starts quoting from the Old Testament. So he's establishing common ground with his accusers. We all acknowledge Abram or Abraham was our first father as a Jew. I'm a Jew. You men are Jews. He's establishing common ground by teaching from the Old Testament, which they found to be authoritative. And so he's establishing that common ground. I, just like you, am a believing Jew of the Old Testament scriptures. And so that's where we left off. So we're going to go ahead and pick up in verse 9 as Stephen continues to give his defense all the way. Look at If you've got a Bible in front of you, look at how long this chapter is. 
it goes up to verse 60, one of the longest chapters in the book of Acts. It's all narrative. Most of it is Stephen talking. And today I'm going to attempt to preach from, go from verse 9 all the way to verse 43. And you might say, that is impossible, Pastor Cliff. And I'd say, no, I believe in miracles. I believe in miracles. Uh, Stephen probably said this in uh, less than 50 minutes, I would imagine. So I think I can preach on it in less than 50 minutes. As a matter of fact, before I delve into the text there on your bulletin, I I gave you three main points I want to highlight. Uh, Before we get into the text as we go, and we're just going to go verse by verse, moving pretty quickly because this is narrative. It's a story, and we don't want to interrupt it too much for the sake of continuity because of the way that it was delivered by Stephen. First background information before we get to the details of this mock, phony trial. I want to read Matthew 10. Listen really carefully. This is Jesus towards the end of his ministry maybe about midpoint of the ministry, he's going to die in a year. He's training his 12 apostles through a practicum. He's taught them a lot. Now he's going to let them loose, go go preach, go teach. And then he gives them this warning. As you go and preach and teach on my behalf right now in this practice session during your seminary education, but also after I leave, I want to warn you of what's going to happen as you go out and preach for me. And this warning that Jesus gave is being fulfilled in the life of Stephen right now while he is on trial. So listen carefully. This is maybe a year before what is happening to Stephen, a year before. So you could call it a prophecy as well as a warning from Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples at the time, Stephen was probably not in this group of Jews that Jesus was teaching. He's talking primarily to the 12 apostles, but maybe some additional disciples as well. Stephen is not here. He didn't hear this promise from Jesus. Stephen comes along later. So Jesus says to his apostles and some of the disciples at the time, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Wolves, people who are um, mean, vicious, voracious, they attack sheep, they attack the innocent, they are merciless. I'm going to send you out as sheep, as innocent. I'm the shepherd, I'm sending you out, I'm commissioning you in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as does, but beware of men. Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogue. These are Jewish men. Jesus warned the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem, of Israel, who were in charge of the temple. There were shadows and predictions of me, the Messiah. These men, the ones who wield the authority and broker the power and supposedly represent God on behalf of the people. These men are the wolves. Beware. They will hand you over to the courts. They will scourge you in their synagogues. They just did that to Peter, John, and the apostles. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them, to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, when they arrest you, and that's what they've done to Stephen. They arrested Stephen because of his work in the synagogues. These Jews, these Jewish leaders. When they hand you, do not worry, Stephen, about what you will say. For 
It will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. In that very hour. So Stephen gets arrested. He's dragged before this court. He's before the 70 most authoritative, erudite rulers in Jerusalem. He has no idea what's going to happen, what they're going to ask of him, what they're going to say. And then the high priest says, are these charges true? Well, first of all, they gave trumped up false charges that Stephen probably was not expecting. So he didn't have time to prepare and study his legal brief in preparation. This was going to be spontaneous. He did not have a lawyer to prepare him. While he's on trial, he doesn't have a jury to be objective and listen to the facts. But Jesus, nevertheless, says, Do not worry about what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say when you are on trial. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. This is awesome. You have already seen Stephen before he gets arrested. When he was chosen to serve tables, it said that he was filled with the spirit. He was. And one of the qualifications Peter said for the people to look for in the people they choose is look for people filled with the spirit. And in light of this prophecy from Jesus, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit of God will speak through you spontaneously in that moment, in the midst of the pressure. Brother will betray brother to death. Brother speaks of Jews. Don't don't trust people just because they're Jewish. Because brother will betray brother. Jew will betray Jew. And that's exactly what's going to happen. To the point of death. That's what happens with Stephen. This chapter ends with his death. And here's the key, verse 20. Why is this happening, this resistance, this animosity? You will be hated by all because of me, because of my name. We, we can't forget that. I keep reading that. Uh, you, Christian, are going to be hated by this world because of my name, because of Jesus. Your goal as a Christian is to go out and try to appease everybody and make Christianity candy-coated and, and just say uh, the gospel is in the most winsome way possible with the goal of avoiding any criticism or not stepping on anybody's toes or not wanting to make anybody upset or create any resistance. That is the wrong attitude. The gospel is offensive in and of itself in terms of the content. And that's what Jesus was saying. And that's what Stephen was doing. He's just preaching Jesus. That was not a crime. That didn't violate any rules or laws in the Old Testament, by the way. That was not a violation of Mosaic law. Ironically, it was a fulfillment of Mosaic law. Because the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, and all of the prophets predicted the coming of the Messiah. It gave credentials and qualifications. And over 600 prophecies in total regarding the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled them all. For the Jewish leaders, it should have been as clear as a bell that Jesus indeed was the Messiah. So now here's further detail on the immediate context that Stephen is about to continue his testimony before this court. Uh, The church is now only two to three months old. It's brand spanking new. Jesus ascended about three months prior. Uh, The church exploded from 120 people to now over 20,000 people in Jerusalem alone. Jerusalem has been filled with the doctrine of Christianity and even trickling beyond Jerusalem at this point. At this point, the Christians, they have no buildings. There is no church building. They're meeting in homes, in the street, and every single day in the temple courtyards, and especially in Solomon's portico, which was huge, and they are there every day, and there's more and more Christians, and they are becoming an absolute annoyance 
to the Jewish leadership who maintain the temple. They, they've had it. They are furious. We tried to shut them down the first time, telling John and Peter after we arrested them, shut up. Then we arrested all the apostles and beat them and told them to shut up. That didn't work. It just kept spreading and spreading. So they have reached a breaking point in terms of their annoyance with the apostles and these Christians preaching about Jesus. Now they are going to take drastic action and they are going to do it with Stephen, who becomes the first martyr to the death of Christianity. And it opens the floodgates to a wholesale satanic persecution, opposition to Christianity that has continued for 2,000 years and it exists today. I said several weeks ago that there are over, as far as we know, 100 million Christians on earth today under persecution, some of it drastic, many being killed and slaughtered. That's happening today. Jesus said that would happen. The world hates Christ. And as a result, the world will hate Christians and their message. And we see that fulfilled in Stephen, the first martyr. We have, we have persecution going on today. It's rising here in America. It's rising in California. It's all around us. It's political. It's personal. It's in the job. It's in our government. Uh, it's local. It's federal. It's everywhere. The persecution, animosity, it's all over television. The bent towards anti-Christianity is unbelievable. It's been rampant since the 1960s here in America. Most recently, I sent out an email telling you that one of our state senators here in California, Senator uh, Ricardo Lara, who came up with a bill, Bill SB 1146. I asked you to pray for it because other Christians around the world, Christian leaders were asking you to pray for this, even on our behalf here in California, where a state senator here in California created a bill that was specifically attack Christianity. That was his goal, and he hasn't been shy about it. Attack Christians, attack their institutions, and specifically attack Christian education institutions. And if that bill passed, and it very well likely could have, they would have basically undermined and, and tried to shut down Christian colleges, Christian seminaries, all the way down. And basically what it was doing is stripping private Christian institutions of their religious liberties guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States. That just happened. Well, so many Christians phoned in, and that's one of the privileges we have that Stephen didn't have 2,000 years ago. Is we can kind of cooperate, and we're involved in our government, and we can choose our leaders and vote them in and vote them out and speak up and have a voice. And so many, they, they were so overwhelmed, the Senator Ricardo Lara was so overwhelmed with Christians uh, opposing it that he rescinded the bill and chose not to submit it. And here's what he said the day he rescinded the bill. The goal for, quote, the goal for me has always been to shed light on the, and not just shed light. He's not just shedding light. This is a wholesale aggressive act against Christians. To shed light on the appalling and unacceptable discrimination by Christians. Just so you know, that's what he's talking about. Appalling, unacceptable discrimination against LGBT students at these private religious institutions throughout California. And then he made this promise. He said, I will be back. I will be back. But anyway, that, that's just one example of overt persecution coming from a heart that absolutely hates Christianity. And, and many of you have your own personal examples. Um, also about the church here, as Stephen's preaching at this point, 
Uh, there's no building. There, there were two prior arrests, as I said. There's a gag order that's been put in place. And now Stephen is about to give his testimony. Uh, reminders, this is not a sermon that Stephen is giving in these long verses here. This is not a sermon. He's not preaching a sermon to the church body on a Sunday. This is a testimony. It's a formal testimony in a court of law. Now, because it's not a sermon doesn't mean he's not preachy. He's kind of preachy here. <laughs> he, he brings it to a close and an indictment and calling them to act on the scriptures and the divine revelation that he has just preached. He personalizes it with an application and like a call to repentance. So it is preachy, but it's not a sermon. It is a testimony. It's a bona fide testimony. He is a... By the way, uh, I say the title is The First Christian Martyr. Just so you're aware, the definition of martyr has been totally turned on its head in our day and age and in this generation. Because many times we hear about Muslim martyrs. Muslim martyrs. Well, And what do they mean by that? Well... Historically, a martyr is an innocent person who gets murdered. A martyr is an innocent person who gets murdered. Today, in Islam, they say that if one of their people goes in with a vest full of bombs to kill innocent people, then that person that went in to kill the innocent people is a martyr. See the difference? They're not a martyr. They're actually a murderer. Like the pizzeria that they went into in Israel, the pizzeria with a bunch of just innocent people with a vest on, an explosive vest, went in there and blew himself up, the Muslim, because he hated the Jews there in Jerusalem at the pizzeria. And I think about 60-plus innocent Jewish people, including women and children, died from the explosion, and he was hailed as a martyr. No, he was a murderer. So let's get clear the definition from a biblical point of view in our mind. A martyr is someone who dies who was murdered, but they were innocent. And it's usually for their faith, and that's what Stephen is. Um, He is all alone, as I said. I already told you who's there making up the Sanhedrin. By the way, this is kind of interesting. You've got 71 members in the Sanhedrin. It could have been that Joseph of Arimathea was a very influential Jew and probably a member of the Sanhedrin, as was Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, one of the most influential Pharisees. He may well uh, may have been a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. But it could be that after they met Jesus and after the death and resurrection, and those two men actually took the body of Jesus down and buried it, could be that they got saved. And it could be that they resigned from the Sanhedrin. We don't know. It's also interesting knowing that in the audience, knowing that Gamaliel is there, his prize student Saul of Tarsus could very well be sitting in one of those 71 seats. Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul, sitting there listening to Stephen, ready to condemn Stephen to death. It's almost guaranteed that Saul was there as a member because we see Saul introduced in Acts chapter 8 as they murder Stephen on the spot. And just by way of reminder, the four, he, he is being charged with four crimes, Stephen is, as he's about to talk. Blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against God, blasphemy against the temple, and blasphemy against all the laws and customs that Moses passed down. In other words, uh, against the pure religion of Judaism. That's the charge. That is false. Actually, the real charge is he was preaching about Jesus. That's why he's being tried. But that wouldn't stick. So they came up. So uh, Stephen's goal in his 
testimony here in all of chapter 7, he's trying to do a few things. I just summarized uh, three of them. He is trying to, re- he is literally responding to all four charges, and he's going to argue throughout here, uh, I am actually a true Jew. I'm not a false Jew. I, I believe in Moses, the Pentateuch, and the law. I believe and affirm the temple. I'm not a blasphemer of Yahweh. I, I, I believe in the biblical teaching on Yahweh. And I also believe in the purposes of the customs of the law of Moses and the sacrifices and all of that. So he's actually defending himself. That's one of his main goals, to defend himself. Also, he one of his goals is to expose their false religion and their wrong views. And it concludes with an indictment of them. And then the last thing he's trying to do is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment and he's what makes true Judaism true Judaism. It's all about Jesus. That's how he ends his testimony. The climax is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So those are three goals that Stephen has. So let's go ahead and look at them. And the way that basically the big argument is, no, I'm a true Jew. I believe in the Old Testament. He didn't call it that. It was the scriptures, God's word, the holy oracles. I believe in them. I believe in Moses. As a matter of fact, we're going to see he is speaking spontaneously. The spirit of God answered that prayer is speaking through Stephen in profound, deep, inexhaustible ways. As the more I read this week in studies, like, man, this is, this is too deep for me. All the elements and components here. This is authored by the Spirit of God working on Stephen's heart, his mind, and also using the knowledge that he had, the reservoir of Old Testament scripture that he had as he was brought up as a reverent Jew. It is deep. He quotes the Old Testament over and over again spontaneously, and he's doing it accurate. He's giving an accurate interpretation of the Old Testament. He is expositing the Word of God accurately, which absolutely needs to be done to expose false religion. Expose it. Because false religion usually makes an accusation about your Bible, and they tell you what your Bible says, and they always twist your Bible. They don't know how to interpret the Bible. And that's what these unbelieving Jews were doing. And so Stephen has to set them straight. And so he does this amazing sweep of Old Testament. This is an Old Testament survey class that he does in probably 15 minutes or less. Pretty much beginning with Abraham going all the way to the time of Solomon, 2000 B.C. to 1000 B.C. With those three goals. So let's go ahead and look. Now he's talked about Abraham. He's laid the foundation. I am a Jew. I come from the loins of Abraham just like you do. I'm a Jewish brother. I believe in the glorious God of the Old Testament. I am not a blasphemer. And I've got two more points I want to make to show that I am a true Jew, just like you guys profess to be. And that is I want to talk about Joseph and the nation of Israel and how it came into existence. And also I want to talk about the greatest Jewish prophet, which would be Moses. And then I want to talk about, and I'll conclude with the greatest king of Israel, which was David. And so that's what he does. So you can, this can be outlined by the people he talks about. He talks about Abraham, verses uh, 2 to 8. He talks about Joseph, verse 9 to 19. He talks about Moses, verse 20 to 43. And then he talks about David, Joshua, and Solomon after that. So that's a good way to break it up. That's the flow of his conversation. So let's go ahead to point number one. What Stephen is doing in this testimony is he's just talking, probably standing up, reciting from memory God's revelation in the Old Testament. Uh, The Jews rejected Jesus as they rejected Joseph. That is point number one for today. The Jews rejected Jesus in the Old Testament, or uh, just recently, just as they rejected Joseph, the the Jews that uh, Joseph is, or in the Old Testament, uh, Joseph's brothers rejected Joseph. I want to do uh, point A, B, and C real quick. God sent Joseph in the Old Testament to deliver the Jews. Remember their dad, Jacob, who became Israel? He had 12 sons. Joseph was the second to the youngest. 
And God, by age 17, had revealed to Joseph, you're, you're special out of the 12. God has his hand of blessing on you. He had visions. He had dreams. He had prophecy that he gave through God. And Joseph spoke those prophecies at age 17, and his big brothers beat him up, threw him into slavery. They wanted to kill him, actually. So God raised up Joseph to be the deliverer of his brothers. God raised up Joseph to be a prophet and a deliverer and a savior of his brothers who are the nation of Israel. Yet his brothers, his Jewish brothers, the nation of Israel, rejected the deliverer. See the parallel? That's what they did to Jesus. God raised up Jesus to be the savior and deliverer of the nation of Israel, and they rejected the Jewish deliverer. That is the parallel. That's why Stephen is bringing this up. So God sent Joseph to deliver the Jews, his brothers, the Israelites. Yet the Jews, point B, rejected the deliverer. They rejected Joseph. (laughs) Here's the amazing thing. This is the grace of God. Point C, God delivered the Jews anyway. How gracious of him. It's awesome. So let's go ahead and look at that. 9 to 19, story of Joseph. So after he talks about Abraham, verse 9, he says the patriarchs became... Oh, he introduces the patriarchs in verse 8 after talking about Abraham. Abraham uh, was given a promise by God that God would bless Abraham's descendants. They would become the Jews, the nation of Israel, and he would give them many blessings, including the promised land, and also through the loins of Abraham, the Messiah would come. That's Genesis 12. The Messiah will come through Abraham. He will be a Jew, and he will be the Savior of the world. So that was the promise given to Abraham. And in order to have a nation, you have to have children, and so the Children of Abraham are introduced. Isaac, in verse 8, son of Abraham. And then Isaac had sons, and the son of choice was Jacob. And Jacob got his name changed to Israel, probably after he got saved by God. And then Israel, Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 men would be a portion land, and they'd become the nation of Israel. That's where the nation of Israel comes from, those 12 sons. And one of the sons was named Joseph. That's verse 19. So the patriarchs, uh, these 12 brothers... And you can go through Genesis and see the 12 brothers and their names and uh, Reuben, and they all have amazing personalities and things that they did, and Joseph and Benjamin were the two youngest. But Joseph was the called one to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. So uh, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, uh, the older brothers, when he was about 17 years of age because Joseph told them, God has called me to do something special, and they thought that was pathetic. You are uh, self-absorbed. You don't know what you're talking about. You're deluded, and their their dad was even a little... Wow, are you sure about that, Joseph? And so they got jealous, and they tried to kill him. They threw him into a pit. Then they sold him off into slavery, and then he was taken down by the Ishmaelites down to Egypt. And he ends up from age 17 to age 30 in Egypt, first as a slave and in prison, and then God is gracious to him and rises him to providence to the point where by age 30, Joseph becomes basically the governor of all of Egypt. Absolutely amazing. He answers only to the Pharaoh, the most important king and influential king on planet Earth in his day. He comes in great humility, with great rejection, and rises by the, prev- the providence and the blessings of God in the face of the resistance of man till he's put at a pinnacle of preeminence. Hence, again, that is the picture of Jesus the Messiah. And he's re- the irony, he's rejected by his own people, but accepted by non-Jews, like Pharaoh. 
And that's kind of what happened with Jesus. Rejected by many of his own Jews, especially the leadership. And then God said, fine, I'm going to the Gentiles now. So the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph when he was 17, so they sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him. See, that's key. God was with him. So that's Joseph's point. Yeah, just because I'm being rejected, or uh, Stephen's point, just because I'm being rejected by you doesn't mean God isn't with me. Just because you rejected Jesus doesn't mean God was with him. That's been the history of Israel for thousands of years. As a matter of fact, at the end of the chapter, chapter 7, here's his main point, verse 52, chapter 7, Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, which one of the prophets in the Old Testament did your fathers not persecute and kill? Israel has a history of rejecting their prophets, rejecting their deliverers, and so you also did it with the Savior, the Lord Jesus. And they're about to do it with Stephen. Yet God was with him and God rescued Joseph, verse 10, chapter 7, from all of his afflictions, granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and over all of his household. By the time he was age 30, verse 11, when he was about 30 years old, Joseph, a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan, the Middle East, and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. The brothers, Jacob and his sons, they couldn't find any food. There was famine as they were living in the promised land. They needed food. But when Jacob or Israel heard that there was grain over in Egypt, he sent the brothers of Joseph a a couple of times to go get food. And so they do. And they come back. Verse 13. And on the second visit, Joseph revealed himself. He made himself known to his brothers. And they were shocked. They thought he was dead or at least sold away as a slave, and now, wow, he runs the country? How did this happen? And Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word with permission from Pharaoh, and he invited his elderly father, Jacob, Israel, who was in the midst of a famine in the promised land. He invited his dad to come on down to Egypt where there was plenty of food and safety and the blessing and protection of Pharaoh in Egypt. So Jacob complied and uprooted and they moved their whole family into Egypt. Jacob, his wives, Jacob also known as Israel, his 12 sons, their wives, all their relatives came with them, 75 persons in all. So that's the nation of Israel. Now it started with Abram, one guy, then uh, Abram and Sarah, two, and then they have a son, three, and then now it's grown to 75 people. That is the Foundation of the nation of Israel. And they move out of the promised land into Egypt. Verse 15, and Jacob went down to Egypt and there he he and our fathers died. They all died down there in Egypt out of the promised land. From there, they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb, which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So Joseph's brothers and Jacob, they died in Egypt, but then their bones were eventually brought back to the promised land, and they were buried in the same area and location where Abraham and Sarah were were buried. Because at one point, Abraham actually bought a small, he bought a little cemetery is what he did with his own money. And that's where their relatives were buried. And it was very close to where the woman at the well met up with Jesus. Sychar, Shechem, about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. So that's what it's talking about in verse 16. Uh, Verse 17, but at As the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So the promise goes back to God gave Abram a promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have many descendants. I'm going to turn you into a a nation. 
and I'm going to give you the promised land. That was never fulfilled during the life of Abraham, during the life of Jacob, and during the life of Jacob's 12 sons. They never realized, especially the land promise was not fulfilled yet. So they all held out in hope. And so the people began to increase there in Egypt. They took God's word literally in Genesis chapter 1. God said, be fruitful and multiply. The Jews, they believed that and they did. Regardless of their circumstances, regardless of no money, they knew the children were a blessing from God and they just grew like crazy in Egypt. They probably started taking over the land where they were living there in Goshen and they multiplied from 75 people to probably around 2 million Jews in a 400-year period. And there was a new pharaoh eventually that took over after the nice pharaoh of Joseph and he hated Jews. He was anti-Semitic. Who are all these Jewish people? Who are all these foreigners? Where do they come from? What was the previous policy? They need to be slaves. Not only are they to be slaves, we need to uh, put them under duress and make it difficult for them. So he hated it. And then he starts killing their babies. I'm, I'm tired of these Jews and their multiplication. New decree, new law from the evil king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. From now on, all male Jewish boys die. They are to be thrown into the Nile River and drown. That was the decree that he made. But as time, verse 17, of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased, multiplied in Egypt, the Jews, verse until, bad news, there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. He was evil, he was wicked. Verse 19, and it was that Pharaoh who took the shrewd advantage of our race as the Jews, the Israelites, and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. And they were, it was commanded that they'd be thrown into the river. And so Moses was actually thrown into the river. But they kind of did it with like a, a safety raft, a floaty. He was thrown in the river with floaties. Hey, they didn't say you couldn't do that. Actually, they put him in a nice secure basket that actually floated. And he, as an infant, he was put into the Nile River in that basket, following orders from the king. Put him in the Nile. Let him go. Floated down the river. And in God's providence, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh rescued the basket, took the beautiful, saw the baby. Uh, and Moses, as an infant, was just a beautiful baby. And so that young lady took that baby, rescued baby Moses, and took him into the palace. And they basically adopted Moses. And he lived in the palace of the king, the most privileged palace probably on planet Earth at the time. And Moses was raised there for 40 years. And as an infant, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter actually went and recruited Moses' mother to come and nurse the baby. Again, the providence got absolutely amazing. So that Moses does not forget his roots. So that's the grace of God. And so that's the story of Joseph and all the parallels that picture Christ, the deliverer being rejected by the Jews, and yet God saves. Anyway, now he goes to Moses. Moses, the greatest prophet of Judaism that Stephen affirms and believes in and recounts uh, from history all of the life of Moses, all 120 years in this short display, affirming everything about him. Did you know that Moses had faults? Not many, not many that we know of, but there were here and there. He had an explosive temper at times, every once in a while. One of them he was particularly punished for. He was very humble, though. But as you read through this, notice that Stephen doesn't say anything negative about Moses in this 
He, everything he says is true. It is fact. Most of it's from the Old Testament. Some of it is new revelation given by the Spirit of God. We've never heard before about what happened with Moses. And he covers all 120 years, and he does it 40 years at a time. Boom, boom, boom. And his point is, you know what? Uh, Jesus was the deliverer of the Jews, and yet you rejected him. But God saves anyway. Let me tell you about another deliverer of the Jews, and his own people rejected him. It was Moses, the greatest prophet there ever was. How can you men forget that? So look at verse 20, or we'll start at verse 19. As he's about to introduce Moses, it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race, uh, mistreated our fathers so they would not, uh, so they would expose their infants. They would not survive. Verse 20, it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured for three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own. Verse 22, and Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. That is an amazing statement. That is not stated in the Old Testament. This is new revelation from Stephen via the Spirit of God. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. We tend to think of old people 2,000, 3,000 years ago as like cavemen. Duh. Me, man, you, woman, this stick, I carp. Now, the Egyptians were at that time some of the most advanced educated, erudite, prolific human beings in the history of humanity. To this, You think we have good engineers here in the Bay Area? Sorry, engineers out there. Egypt had the most amazing mechanical engineers and engineers of all sorts because to this day, trained engineers go to Egypt and they look at this, the massive pyramids or the things that they constructed or the, the massive limestone Half a block long. First of all, how, where in the world do you get a piece of limestone that big? Secondly, how in the world do you carve it? Third of all, how did they put it all the way up there? They were engineering scientific geniuses. And this was the education that Moses had in addition to the blessing of God on a supernatural level. So educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, was a man of power and words and deeds. He was not a wimp, verse 23. He was a humble man, but he was not a wimp. He was courageous. He was bold. He was physically strong. Verse 23, but when Moses was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brothers. That is not stated in the Old Testament either. Stephen's given us new information. It entered Moses' mind to visit his oppressed, enslaved Jewish brothers. Why? Because God put that in his heart. And he did. Came down from a high came down from the glory, humbled himself into the ghettos of the slave. That's what Jesus did as the deliverer. Came down from all on high. Eternal glory with the Father is almighty, infinite, omnipotent God of the universe, humbled himself to become a man to commiserate going shoulder to shoulder with sinners. That, that's the clear picture. The deliverer of God. At age 40, he began to discern this. How did they receive him? Well, certainly they would welcome him, a fellow Israelite, a fellow advocate, wanting to protect them from their oppressors. That would be logical. So verse 23, approaching age 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel, verse 24. And when he saw one of them being one of his fellow Jews being treated unjustly by an Egyptian, probably Moses defended the fellow Jew 
and took vengeance. He got violent on behalf of the oppressed by striking down and killing the Egyptian. And it says that in the Old Testament, Moses buried that Egyptian guy in the, in the sand on the spot and tried to hide the evidence. But, uh-oh, people saw it. Now, when Moses did that, he was thinking, certainly by doing this, I will win the favor of my fellow Jews. They will see me, they will welcome me as the deliverer and their defender. That is not what happened. He supposed that his brethren, verse 25, would understand that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. They did not understand. That is a key phrase. Verse 26, on the following day, when Moses appeared again to them down in the ghetto, as they were fighting together, this time he's got two Jews fighting with each other, and Moses tried to intervene. So not only is he deliverer, he is arbitrator, he is mediator, he is reconciler. Among us, he is judge, is the technical term. He is judge. Two Jews fighting with each other. He tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, Brothers, fellow Jews, why do you injure one another? Verse 27. But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed Moses away, literally pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? Uh Oh, Moses has been found out. So two problems there. Wow, the Jews, they didn't accept me. They have rejected me. And now they're holding this blackmailing me. Verse 29, this remark, Moses fled, he ran, he became a fugitive. And he became an alien in the land of Midian. He split, left Egypt, went into Midian, and he went down the place where uh, Mount Horeb is, Mount Sinai, where he became the father of two sons. He lived there for 40 years, basically in isolation. Trying to deliver Israel at age 40, it's not going to be until age 80. We, we often hear that, well, why did Moses have to wait another 40 years to age 80 to be the deliverer. And many times we hear sermons, and I've done this as well. Well, it took that long to prepare Moses to be the deliverer. Well, from this, we learned that, well, it also took 40 years to prepare God's people to receive and accept Moses as the deliverer. Moses isn't the only one who needs preparation. It was a wholesale rejection of the Jewish deliverer named Moses. Verse 30, after 40 years had passed, now he's 80 years old. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. The Old Testament says an angel of the Lord. Actually, it says the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. That is God Almighty. God appeared in a fiery bush to Moses through the conduit of an angel. Very well could be the pre-incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was God talking out of the bush. An angel appeared to uh, Moses in in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw the burning bush, he marveled at the sight. He marveled for several reasons. It was glorious. Uh, the bush was not being consumed. And there came the voice of the Lord out of the bush. And the voice said, I am the God of your father. See, it's God talking. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and appropriately so and would not venture to look. He's in the presence of almighty, sinless, the glorious God. And, and God told him to remove his sandals. Verse 33, but the Lord Yahweh said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing. It is holy ground. And Moses complied, took his feet off. He had a reverence for his holy God. He knew God. He loved God. And yet he had a fear and reverence for God, which is appropriate. The Christian shouldn't have a flippant attitude towards the man upstairs. That is irreverent. That is not treating God as holy, holy, holy. 
I have seen, and God says, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and I have come down. God has come down. He condescends to his people. He meets his people to rescue them. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a gracious God. He's a patient God. Come now. I will send you Moses to Egypt. Verse 35. This Moses whom they disowned, whom they rejected. Saying, who made you a ruler and judge is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man, Moses, led them out. We know from the Old Testament, nearly two million Israelites performing wonders and signs like never seen before in the history of the earth. The ten plagues, the Nile turning to blood, the Red Sea parting. And they've heard on dry ground. They see all this. They're eyewitnesses to this. They are liberated. They are free. In the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, in the wilderness for 40 years, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet. This is a messianic prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. God told them, Moses was a preacher and a prophet, and he said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, but greater than me. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. That's why Stephen is bringing this up to the Sanhedrin. Moses predicted the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. It's in your own scriptures. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel of the Lord who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you, the living word of God. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to Moses. They rejected Moses the same way they rejected Jesus, the same way they rejected the apostles, the same way they are going to reject Stephen. But they repudiated him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, and Egypt was full of idols, false gods, false religion. And from the time of when they went into Egypt, all the way till the Babylonian captivity, Israel was prone and given over to false worship through idols for almost a thousand years. And so that's what he's referring to now, verse 40. Uh, Our fathers are unwilling to be obedient to him, but they repudiated him, verse 40, saying to Aaron, make for us. The people rose up against Moses and said, make us gods who will deliver us, who will go before us. For this Moses, this was when Moses was up on the hill getting the Ten Commandments, when God was saying, have no false idols. And they're saying, Aaron, can you give us an idol? For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to that Moses guy who just did those amazing miracles and set us free. At that time, they made a calf. This was an Egyptian god, by the way, and brought a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hand. They're rejoicing over this idol. Hundreds of thousands of Israelites who had just been delivered by God. But God turned away. God was upset. He killed many of them on the spot, the wrath of God. He preserved many. He didn't wipe them all out. Moses interceded on behalf of his people. Moses interceded on behalf of many sinners that the wrath of God might be appeased and assuaged. And as a result, God would be gracious to the undeserving sinner. That's what Jesus did. That's Stephen's point. Showing grace to undeserving sinners. Verse 42, but God turned away, delivered them up to serve the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets, quotes Amos. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness. 
was it, O house of Israel? You idol worshipers, God is saying. You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch, the false god, who demanded people burn their babies live in the fire, and the star of the god Rompha, worshiping planets, the images which you made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. God predicted that they would be chastened, the nation of Israel. They would be punished for their idolatry. And so God eventually, around 600 B.C., Israel was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar down into Babylon. And they were there for 70 years. And God actually purified them because when the Jews came out of Babylon in about 530 B.C., never again has the nation of Israel or the Jews ever struggled with idolatry, ever. So it worked. They were purified. That was the loving chastening of Yahweh for his people. So just a couple of closing summary statements regarding what Stephen was highlighting and doing here that actually apply to us today. And the first point is actually going to come up a little bit more next week. One of the things, Stephen was accused of blaspheming the temple, and and Stephen argues, you know what? If you look at the history of Israel, God was not confined to a temple. That's what the Sanhedrin was saying. God is confined to a temple. And Stephen is saying, no, he's not. He's a transcendent God. As a matter of fact, he lived without a temple all the way up until the time of Solomon. He lived, God resided and lived with his people without a temple for 3,000 years. And so just because Jesus comes along and says, it's not all about the temple, there's a new day and there's a new temple. And for us today, God does reside in a temple, but the temple is the individual Christian. The Holy Spirit lives in you the moment you become a Christian and God lives in you and you, Christian, are the temple of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. That's how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And that's what Stephen is arguing. It's not all about localized temple. God is in many places. He is at even non-Jewish places. He is at uh, Mount Sinai where God revealed himself. A a pagan non-Jewish temple site. He appeared to Abraham in pagan Ur of the Chaldees. That is our God. That's why Jesus could say, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why scripture can say, um, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Christian. Jesus, God is with us everywhere we go. If you're a Christian, that is awesome. You are the temple of God. Second thing Stephen was doing is they accused him of blaspheming God. In other words, you have a wrong view of Yahweh, Stephen. And Stephen argued his case beautifully from scripture. No, uh, I don't. I have a majestic biblical view of God as he delineated in the history of the Old Testament, that God He's not a person, he's not a man, he's not a body. He is transcendent. He is gracious. He's gracious even to non-Jews. He is merciful. He is holy. And we can't earn our salvation by works. And that's what these Sanhedrin members were trying to do. They also charged him of rejecting all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And he's, he's going to point out throughout his argument that no, All these sacrifices point to Jesus, the Messiah. They point to atonement through his death and resurrection. And then he also indicted their false religion, which was a works righteousness system. So now, uh, as we go into communion, and I'm just going to go straight into communion. We have the privilege today of having communion, but I want to read two verses from Romans chapter 5. 
in preparation for communion. By the way, if you're a Christian, you're born again, you're invited and welcome to, to take communion with us. Jesus gave two ordinances to his church and told us to practice those until his glorious return in the future. They're living metaphors of his great work. There was baptism. By the way, if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, we invite you to go ahead and get baptized right here if you'd like to, September 18th, right in the tank back there. Prerequisites of baptism, uh, you're a Christian. And you clearly understand the gospel. That's it. It's very simple. And you get dunked as a picture of the work that Jesus has already done on your behalf. So that was the first ordinance. The other ordinance is communion or the Lord's table. We call it the Lord's Supper, the fellowship meal that Jesus transformed the Passover of the Old Testament into communion for the church in the New Testament, a reminder visibly of the new covenant that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are to take the bread and the cup. So when the cup comes, those of you who are new, you just need to grab one cup. And in that cup, it's got the bread and the juice in one cup. And then we'll partake together in just a minute. But that's the, the communion. Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, just before his death. So it was to be a picture and a metaphor of his death. on the, Actually, his perfect life that was sinless as the God-man. Then his willing substitutionary death on the cross where he absorbed the wrath of the Father on behalf of sinners. We didn't deserve his grace and forgiveness. We can't earn our salvation. Jesus got punished for our sin. Then he was buried and he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven. And that's what communion pictures is the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of the Christian who was forgiven. And so really communion is a time of celebration. And Paul calls it the celebration in the book of Corinthians where he uses the word Eucharist. Eucharist, that's a time of thanksgiving and praise. So in just a moment when we pass out the cups, uh, just hold on to it and in your own heart, pray to the Lord. If you know Jesus, thank him. Meditate in your own heart. Search your own heart. Confess your sins, as 1 John 5 says. And rejoice in this great truth from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 that we saw actually reflected in Stephen's testimony today. Here's what Paul said. Talking to Christians, for while we were still helpless before we got saved... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were ungodly before we got saved. And Jesus died for us, not because we deserved it or because we did a lot of pleasing good works or because we were godly. He died for us while we were ungodly. And he says it, he reiterates it one more time. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then verse 10, he says, Christ died while we were enemies. So we were ungodly, undeserving, sinful, and God's enemies. And nevertheless, the Lord Jesus Christ died on our behalf anyway to shed his grace upon us. That is cause for celebration. And all of our sins are forgiven as a result. If I could ask the brothers to come down and we'll, uh, as they are passing out the cup, go ahead and meditate in your own heart for just a moment, and then we'll partake together.
the Lord Jesus called his people to eat and drink in his name. Let's partake together. And before we close with our final song, if you could bow your heads and pray with me as we commit our our time to our Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to come before you. As the Lord Jesus said that we could, calling you Father, because you have adopted us into your family through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and have given us the gift of prayer. And we thank you that you make prayer possible as we are finite and fallen through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is our intercessor. And so we have this amazing direct access to you as your children but also as priests. And we thank you for the person of the Lord Jesus and his amazing work. God, thank you that you do not change, and I thank you that we can see how you operated in history, how gracious and amazing you were to a pagan idol worshiper, Abraham, made promises to him and saved him strictly by your grace, and how you did the same with Joseph, Moses, and your people all throughout history. Thank you for the opportunity to partake in communion and what it reminds us of. And we we do rejoice and celebrate this day for forgiveness, total forgiveness, in the death, resurrection, and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we pray that you go before us this day, Lord, and also through your Holy Spirit, your word, and the counsel of your people this week as we entrust it to you, all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.